This morning we're in our sixth week of the study of Mark. Last week our brother Bren finished up the first chapter where we saw Jesus has already demonstrated his authority over disease and over demons. He has demonstrated his authority in teaching by proclaiming the truth and doing it in ways that had never been done before. So in our study this week, Jesus demonstrates that he has the authority to forgive. This is what is at the heart of the unforgettable miracle that is in the first part of our text today. And it's been a very great blessing to me preparing it this week. So that's why I subjected you to two other versions of it in the reading for today. Because I'm, uh, I'm delighted to teach it. It's been a great... Um, learning experience for me getting this deep into it. We are going to be covering today the first 17 verses of chapter 2. So let's open our Bibles to the second chapter of Mark and follow along as I read the first section from verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And as he rose, immediately he picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous gift of your word. As we look into the person of Jesus, we ask that you strengthen our love and devotion towards you. May we give you our love and obedience as your children in Christ. Amen. These first 12 verses contain one of the more wonderful and memorable stories of the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a story which is echoed in Matthew chapter 9 and Luke chapter 5, which I read earlier. And when I say it's a story, it is a story. It's a marvelous story, but it's not just a story. It's a true story about what Jesus did at a particular time 
in a particular place to change everything for one particular man and impact a great crowd of people. Last week at the end of chapter 1, Jesus has been making quite a stir in Galilee. Healing, preaching, teaching, an enormous response, thousands responding in the region. Mark had told us earlier that Jesus had made his headquarters in Capernaum, but the crowds became so fierce that it became impossible to do what he had come to do, and that is to preach the glorious gospel of salvation, repentance, and faith in God's grace and forgiveness. So he took his ministry to the other villages around the Sea of Galilee. So now let's look at verse 1, where it says, And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. So we see here that he returned to Capernaum. Capernaum had an energy in the air. Jesus has come back. It was the most exciting thing to happen that they had seen. The text says that he was in the house. Another way of translating that is he was at home. It's quite possible that that home in Capernaum was the home of Peter. And that was his home base. He comes back to this, the largest town on the lake, the trade center north and south and east and west. It was a busy, busy place. A Roman garrison was there. A tax office was there. It was a significant place, and he comes back to it now. The house, we don't know how big it was. It probably was around the biggest house that they could find and meet in. And there they are. Jesus is there to preach, and the place is absolutely packed. And many were gathered together, it says in verse 2, so that there was no more room not even at the door, and he was preaching the word to them. So no sooner does Jesus come into the house, but once again a huge multitude presses together to gain entrance to this place to hear Jesus teach and to watch him perform his powerful works. Mark describes the scene in this manner, that so many people were pressed about that the whole house was filled with people, and not only that, but they were crowded outside at the door so you couldn't even get close to the entrance of the house from the outside. So I'd like you to try and imagine yourself being one of those people who had made it inside, one of the lucky ones, and that you were able to see and hear what was going on. So there are, of course, in the room some true followers and true believers who knew him and loved him, but that was a small minority. Most were probably there because of Jesus' notoriety, which he had gained in chapter 1. Everyone knew about him and wanted to see him. In Luke's account, he adds, the Pharisees were mingled in. These were not priests. They were lay people but they were devoted to keeping the people loyal to the Old Testament law, and more importantly, the tradition. They were the fundamentalists, the legalists, the promoters of salvation by works. 
This is the system that dominated the people. They believed in the Old Testament, and they believed in angels, and they believed in demons, and they believed in human responsibility, and they believed in the written law and the oral law, but they were not particularly interested in the spiritual truth of what they knew. They had no interest in the spiritual message that Jesus came to preach. They were very deeply offended by it, actually, because it required them in recognizing their own sinfulness and their sinful poverty and their blindness and the oppression that they had on the people of the land. And they didn't want to see themselves in that way because they thought they were holy. And the last phrase of verse 2 says, and he was preaching the word to them. What was happening at that home that day was the ultimate Bible study. We are often impressed with miracle working. And we should be. No one has demonstrated the power of God on earth like the person of Jesus Christ. So it's right for us to be impressed with miracle working. But don't think that Jesus was a miracle worker who occasionally preached. He was the Son of God who preached and also did mighty works of power. So verse 3. And they came, bringing him a paralytic carried by four men. So you have this, a paralyzed man. He's got four friends. Four friends have legs and arms and loved him. But they were persistent. I picture this paralyzed man on something like a stretcher with a man at each corner. Their intent, the four men's intent, was to get their friend healed. They obviously had heard that Jesus had been healing a lot of people and maybe he would heal their friend as well. So verse 4 says, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. So they come to the front of the house, and can they get in? No, it's impossible. It's jammed. People are standing outside and trying to get a peek of what's going on inside. So what do they do? Pressing on with their mission, they get this man to Jesus. To carry, they carry them up to the roof. Now, it was common for homes to have a rooftop, uh, a balcony with stair access, on the outside of the house. So they carry the man upstairs. So they're upstairs. Now what? I know one of the men says, let's take apart the roof. This thing amazes me is how determined these men are to bring relief to their friend. They are so determined that they are prepared to interrupt the teaching of Jesus and to take apart somebody's roof in order to bring their friend to Jesus. So, imagining yourself in the room, downstairs, you and everyone else is listening to Jesus teach. The scribes and Pharisees are sitting on one side. They probably have black robes and were listening intently. And while Jesus is speaking, you look up because you felt some small particle falling on you from the ceiling. And you think to yourself, 
What's up with that? And you hear the men moving around on the roof and hear the roof being taken apart. And you try to keep your attention on Jesus because he's so fascinating, but curiosity gets the best of you because this commotion keeps continuing at the ceiling. And you look up and you see pieces of the ceiling being removed. Now you can see blue sky up in the ceiling. And the hole in the ceiling gets bigger and bigger. You hear the house owner, probably Peter, you know Peter, if it was, they're destroying my roof, he's saying. Then you see this stretcher being lowered by ropes. You see the four faces of the men as they lower their friend down, peeking down into the hole. It's crazy. He's obviously an invalid, and this is sure dangerous for him. What if he fell? When one side gets too low, everyone looking up at him says, he's going to fall. But then there's Jesus. And I picture Jesus standing there watching and smiling. And he's looking up there, and he's not surprised because this is going to be part of the lesson for today. So now you and the crowd are focused on this, transfixed by it. Some are even angry about it. And we know this about those five men. They believed Jesus could heal. They went to very extreme effort to get him there. They had to believe that. Certainly the parable paralytic had to believe it. First of all, he would be embarrassed to be seen in public anyway because any such kind of infirmity was deemed as a judgment of God against the man and people like that didn't want to go out in public. So this man really had to believe Jesus could heal him. And his four friends believed it too because we see in verse 5, Jesus sees their faith. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And you better believe that took a lot of faith. They had to believe this man's life would be changed when they brought him to Jesus. They believed that he was going to get healed. Jesus saw that kind of faith in them. They were saying to themselves, we just need to bring our friend before Jesus. You could see their faith by what they did. Biblically, faith is always linked to action. In James, he puts it this way, faith without works is dead. Faith acts. Faith overcomes. Faith pursues. Faith strives to its object. Imagine the paralyzed man, what he's thinking as he's being lowered down on this stretcher into the room. He may have thought, Jesus might have said when he finally got to the bottom, get this man out of here. I'm trying to preach a sermon. How dare you interrupt me in this way? But Jesus' reaction was far from that. His first word was, son. It was a term of endearment. Son was the first word he said to him. But then notice it says, 
your sins are forgiven. What a strange thing for Jesus to say. I can imagine how everybody reacted to this. The paralyzed man thinking, you know what? For as long as I've been paralyzed, everybody's thought it was because of my sin. I don't know if it's my sin or not, but that's what everybody thinks. And so they look on me and my affliction and say, sinner. But Jesus looks at the paralyzed man and says, son. Now I can imagine the friends on the roof looking down in the hole saying, no, that's not the problem. Can't you see that he's paralyzed? Do something about that. Your sins are forgiven doesn't make sense. We didn't bring him all the way here to get his sins forgiven. We brought him here so to get his legs working again. That's what he really needs. That's why we carried him here. That's why we broke open the roof. Now I want you to notice something. Jesus first spoke to this man's greatest need. Jesus didn't want to treat the symptom. He went right for the disease. His paralysis was of interest to Jesus. He was not unconcerned about his physical condition. In fact, as the story continues, he did heal the man. And this morning, Jesus is not concerned about your condition, about your health, your marriage, and your job, and your future. Jesus is gentle and kind. He's a tender shepherd, and he's interested in these things about you. But the priority in your life and in the life of this man was the need for forgiveness. Jesus wants for us what matters most, and that is that we should be restored to a right relationship with God. That's why Jesus came. I know that's hard for us to understand because when someone is physically afflicted, especially someone we love, our heart goes out to them. And it's hard for us to think that a worse situation is for somebody to have their sins unforgiven before God. But that's the truth. There are worse things than not being in good health. We can make an apology, an, an analogy, that is, to our physical body. Did you know that in your physical body you can feel just fine, and yet there can be real problems? Many of us have been feeling just fine and suddenly get diagnosed with something, maybe a terrible disease. You can't go by just, just by what you feel. Sometimes the doctor must tell you the truth about your condition, and you must believe the doctor even though you don't feel it at the moment. And it's that way with the sin problem in your life. Usually we don't feel that way when we compare ourselves to other people. It doesn't matter how bad you are, you can always think of somebody who's worse. You say, I'm not a saint, but I'm not as bad as others. That's very easy to do. Listen, you can have a sin problem and not be aware of it. You need to let Dr. Jesus, the physician of your soul, speak to you about your sin problem. So Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. 
And the paralyzed man, he hears it one way, and the friends hear it another way. And the crowds that's witnessing this, I imagine them saying, this is pretty exciting. Can't wait to see what happens next. So what is Jesus doing? Well, he was putting his finger on the man's real need and everyone's real need, which is the need for forgiveness. Well, this is just what the scribes and Pharisees were looking for. So in verses 6 and 7, we read something about them. It says, Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? The religious leaders who were listening thought this was the way, was way out of bounds for Jesus to say that. He can't say that. But actually, these religious leaders did three things right and then one thing wrong that colored all the other things that they did right. Here are the three things that they did right. The first thing, they were checking out Jesus. They had come to see him. They had heard of some teacher going throughout Galilee, teaching of who knows what. It's entirely appropriate for religious authorities to say, let's get some of our people out there and listen to this guy and see if he's on, see if he's true, see if his teaching is solid. If he's dangerous, we need to find that out and do something about it. There's nothing wrong with them saying, They needed to go out and check it out. Nothing wrong with them being there at all. The second thing, the text says they were questioning in their hearts. Is that wrong, to question in your heart? They were questioning in their heart as they heard Jesus speak. I hope you reason in your heart as you hear the word preached here at Sovereign Grace. I hope your mind isn't in neutral. I hope you're engaged in the word. I hope you're thinking about what is being taught. I hope you're thinking about how this might connect with the other texts in the Bible and how this might connect in your life. It's a good reason, it's good to reason in your heart to be an active listener to the message. So that's the second good thing that these people did. And the third thing is that they correctly analyzed the situation, theologically, that is. When Jesus said, your sins are forgiven you, they said, hey, wait a minute. Only God can forgive sins. And that's completely true. Only God can forgive sins. Now, if I sinned against you, you can forgive me. But here's the issue. When I sin against you, and I actually have sinned against you and God, so I've sinned against not only you, but God. And when you forgive me for my sin against you, that's wonderful, but it still means that I need to have it right with God since I sinned against him as well. There's an important and significant dimension of forgiveness that belongs to God alone. Friends, this is an important point for us to understand. Ultimately, 
Only God can forgive sins. A good work does not take away our sins. Wishful thinking does not forgive sins. Our good intentions don't forgive sins. Time doesn't forgive sins. Forgetfulness doesn't forgive our sins. When we get old, sometimes we forget the bad stuff we did when we were younger. That doesn't take away our sin. We still need those sins to be dealt with before God. Success doesn't take away your sin. You cannot forgive your own sins. We must go to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins. So you say, how do you do that? Well, the Bible gives us a promise. Let's turn to 1 John chapter 1. We read verses 5 through 9. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a beautiful promise. I said that the religious leaders did three things right, but we all recognized there was something wrong with what they did. They were so hypercritical that it poisoned all those good things. They weren't coming with an open heart just to say, Okay, first let's look at this guy. Instead, they came with a predetermined idea. They were looking at Jesus as an enemy right off the bat as soon as they walked into the room. And that poisoned the three good things and put them in an opposing position to Christ. Now, what's fascinating about this, it says in verse 6, they weren't saying this, they were just thinking this. So he's reading their minds, isn't he? Um, They're saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. And so here's their conclusion. He's a blasphemer. And that is correct. That is, he is either a blasphemer or he is God. So that's the point of the whole story. Either Jesus is a blasphemer or he is God. That is, there's no middle ground here. He wasn't just a nice, well-meaning teacher. No, he is either one, the one, who can forgive sin, or he is not. If he can, he is God. If he cannot, he is a blasphemer and is saying that he can do something that he cannot do and thus is a fraud and a deceiver. There's no middle ground. It's got to be one or the other. So let's read on in verse 8. 
And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned themselves within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Well, what a shock that must have been to them. He was aware of their thoughts. Now, if you're debating whether Jesus is a blasphemer or God, you can start right there. Blasphemers can't read your mind. Only God does. We see in 1 Kings 8, 38 to 40, it says, whatever prayer, whatever plea is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction in his own heart and stretching out his hands toward his house, then hear in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each heart you know according to all his ways. For you only know the hearts of all the children of mankind, that they may fear you all the days that they live in the land that you gave to our fathers. So if, if you're wondering whether he's a blasphemer or whether he is God, those men had firsthand proof on the spot right there when he read their thoughts. Well, then Jesus moves on to a second question. He says to them in verse uh, 9, he says, Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? So that's a very interesting question. So which is easier? The spiritual answer is that it's easier for the man to be healed than his sins forgiven. Do you know what's involved in forgiving that man's sins? Jesus Christ had to go to the cross. Jesus had to pour out his blood as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus had to take upon himself the sins of the world to purchase forgiveness that would be granted to that man and to everybody. That was costly. That was a huge thing. In relation to that, healing of a lame man is easy. Spiritually speaking, it's much more difficult to forgive sins than to heal a paralyzed man. But physically speaking, by what we can see and touch and feel, it's much more difficult to heal a man's paralysis. Why? Because you can immediately tell if it happens. If that guy is lying there, 20 minutes later, you got a bit of a problem. It's verifiable. But when your sins are forgiven, there's not a light on your forehead that turns on. The work of forgiveness of sins is real, but it's spiritual. And it can't be seen by the human eye. The effects of being forgiven can be seen, but that takes a while. And you have to look at the evidence and the fruit. At that moment, nobody could know whether or not the man's sins were forgiven. But they could see whether or not he could walk. So in that sense, it was much more difficult to heal him. Go to verse 10 and 11, where it says, But that you may know 
that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. The first thing I want you to know is that Jesus made a dramatic announcement, not about healing, but he made it right there in verse 10. That the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So Jesus was probably looking right at them and smiling. And you could feel the electricity in the air as he said those words. He had referred to himself as the Son of Man. So who is the Son of Man? Those scribes and Pharisees must have known what it meant from the prophet Daniel's revelation of God, which is recorded in Daniel 7. And it describes in detail the appearance, the description, and the character of someone called the Son of Man. We look in Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, where it says, I saw the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So the Son of Man, this one that Jesus called himself, is a heavenly being. The Son of Man is appointed by the Ancient of Days, God, to be the judge of the earth. The Son of Man is given the kingdom forever. So when Jesus calls himself Son of Man, that's not humility. He's saying, I have descended from heaven. I am heavenly, not from this earth. He said, that's why I said your sins are forgiven and that you may know that the Son of Man has divine authority and power to forgive sins. Jesus wanted it to be crystal clear to those religious leaders that he has the power and authority to forgive this man's sins. Basically, he's saying, I'm not just telling you that this man's sins are forgiven by God. I have the power to forgive his sins. So do you realize that he was telling the religious, what the, he was telling the religious leaders? It couldn't have been more clear. He's saying, I am God. He's God. How can he say such a thing? Jesus is saying, you accuse me of blasphemy because I claim to be God, but let me tell you something. I am God. And friends, this is an astounding thing about the Christian faith. We should never stop being amazed about the fact that a man who looked like other men was more than a man, and he was God. And that Christ is God, and he walked this earth, and he laid down his life. And why did he have power to forgive sins? Not only because he is God, but because he paid the price He was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Just like a lamb who was sacrificed for the atonement of sins, 
So Jesus was the perfect sacrifice on the cross. Go on to verse 12. And he rose, talking about the paralytic, and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. This man walks out in the sight of everybody with his bed rolled up under his arm. They were all amazed. Jesus did all these miracles in order to show that he was God, so that he could say, He came to forgive sinners. Not only to forgive sinners, but to provide the sacrifice on which that forgiveness is based. And by the way, he's still doing it. He still says to spiritual paralytics, Son, your sins be forgiven. And he'll say to you, If you repent and believe in him, your sins are forgiven. So how do you see yourself in this Bible story? Are you the one who is paralyzed? You have problems in your life? And one of those problems is the greatest one, even if you don't feel it? It's your sin problem. And again, I understand that you don't feel it's your biggest problem because there's some, something telling you that even right now, it is. It's the Holy Spirit. The Spirit says this is a problem. And you haven't made this right with God. You haven't humbly confessed your sins and received the forgiveness that Jesus went to the cross to purchase for you. You need to come to Jesus, and Jesus will forgive your sins. He absolutely will. Or maybe you see yourself like the religious leaders in this story. You know what you've done. You've talked yourself into an accepted skepticism about the Christian faith. You shouldn't come to the faith unthinkingly. That's not right. It's right for you to reason in your heart about all of these things, but you know the difference between reasoning in your heart in a good way and doing it with a mind which has been preconceived, has preconceived notions and prejudices. God, and God's word to you is don't be like those religious leaders. They were insisting that Jesus play by their rules. Today, Jesus challenges your skepticism. Do not end up like these religious leaders. Pray that Jesus opens and comes into your heart. And the third person that you might relate to in this story, you might most be like the ones who lowered their paralyzed friend down to Jesus. You are believing in God for miracles in the lives of, your, of friends or people that you love. Many of us are in that situation. You're getting tired of holding those ropes You're talking with them, you're praying to them, you're praying for them. Sometimes it feels so discouraging. You don't see any fruit. But Jesus sees you. He commends your faith. Jesus says, don't let go of that rope until I answer. 
And in due time, he will. The paralyzed man, the religious leaders, the four friends, and Jesus had something to say to every one of them. Don't you have friends or people in your life that you know who need Jesus? This account is a refreshing of our faith of what Jesus can do in their life. But that story in verses 1 through 12 gives the account of Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Now the next part of the verses for today, verses 12 through 17, tells you whose sins he forgives. He forgives the sins of those who are self-confessed sinners. He came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So the essence of believing in Christ is believing, first of all, that you are a sinner, hopeless, not redeemable by any of your own works. Now we hear of the calling of the fifth disciple that Mark records, the disciple known as Levi, who is also known in the New Testament as Matthew. So let's turn again to the second chapter of Mark and follow along as I read this second section, verses 13 through 17. He went out again by the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at the table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He was teaching them, it says, and this is good news because, remember, he left their presence briefly because the people were more concerned with his healing power than listening to him teach and the coming of the kingdom of God. He told those people that his mission was to teach and preach. And as he passed by, it says in 14, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. But we're told as he passed by the crowd and the sea where they had been preaching, he saw Levi in the tax office. Now, tax offices in this part of the world would have been little booths, which would have been erected along the busy streets in the villages and cities, particularly where trade was happening near the borders. And the Jewish people were subjected to a very heavy tax levied by the Roman Empire. And there were taxes on property, and taxes on commerce. And people interested in being a tax collector would bid for the opportunity to be a tax collector. If you won, you would, in that bid, set a number that you could accumulate in terms of money. 
that if you could, and if the government liked your bid, you would be selected as the tax collector. And this is the way it worked. And you had a quota. And when that quota was filled, everything above that quota became yours. The system was one of the most corrupt that the world has ever known. It was a lucrative business for anyone who was able to be a tax collector. And of course, Rome was happy with it because they got their money. But the person who became a tax collector had to give up his Jewish identity, his social status, and his membership in the synagogue. If you were a tax collector in Israel, you were Jewish, you were a traitor. In fact, anyone who called you a friend would be considered unclean. You would automatically be expelled from the synagogue. You would be disgraced in your family and would be a social pariah despite the fact that you would at the same time be exceedingly wealthy. So it was scandalous that Jesus would walk up to this little hut and look at the tax collector in there, a Jewish man by the name of Levi, and say to him, follow me. That Jesus selects a tax collector to be part of his disciples is unthinkable in the Jewish mind. We don't know this man as Levi. We know him as Matthew because of the count in Matthew. He calls himself Matthew in that account. So how did his name get changed from from Levi to Matthew. Well, we don't know that. We don't have any record in the scripture, but he probably just changed his name. If you had been a tax collector, it might be good for your future after, uh, after that to, to alter your identity. And if he did choose his name, he chose it well, because Matthew means a gift of the Lord. For he had been a gift given a gift of the Lord in the gift of his salvation. So this is Matthew. In all accounts which list the twelve, there is no Levi, there's only Matthew. Now Jesus comes along, sees Levi sitting in the tax booth, and simply says to him, follow me. That's all he says. That's all that's recorded. There's no explanation. Now this is clearly a command, follow me. And it is immediately obeyed. The command assumes something. And what it assumes is that Jesus knew his heart. In John 2, 23 to 25, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, that is Jesus, many believed in his name. And when they saw the signs that he was doing, But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about a man, for he himself knew what was in that man. So we can see there that uh, the Apostle John lets us know that Jesus knows what's in men's hearts, and it was no different with Levi. Now remember, Capernaum is Jesus' home base, and Levi... He's a high-profile resident. He's got a lot of money. But Jesus has been there, and he's heard Jesus preach, and he's well aware of Jesus' power. He's well aware 
of his message. So he's heard Jesus preach. He knows what he's preaching about. And Jesus had been sowing the seeds and tilling the ground of his heart until now he is repentant. And he is a believer. And he has a heart that the Lord has changed. But he's a tax collector. And Jesus knows all that. So this is another illustration of Jesus' omniscience. He was ready and waiting, that is, Levi was, for the right moment. And he saw Jesus' approach, and he heard the words, follow me. Levi must have been shocked. He must have been absolutely floored that Jesus knew what he desired. And the response, he followed him. Luke 5.28, in the parallel passage, it says he forsook everything. Once he walked away from the tax collector position, there was no going back. There were others that were just waiting there to take it over and nothing to go back to. Levi knew that he was a sinner. He knew there was nothing in himself to commend himself to God. He was hopeless, doomed, damned and he believed in Jesus and he wanted forgiveness and Jesus knew it and all Jesus had to say was follow me and he got out of that little building so fast he left it all behind at that moment everything that controlled his life had no meaning to him the money had no meaning The world had lost its grip on him. Under conviction, all he wanted was forgiveness, and he knew Jesus was the one who could provide it. He had a new heart, a new mind, new desires, and he never looked back. So Levi, the traitor, the extortioner, the outcast, formerly greedy, Abusive sinner became a disciple and an apostle. He would also go on to write one of the four Gospels. He lost a career, but he gained eternal glory. He lost all his possessions, but he gained heaven. He lost his earthly security, but he gained a heavenly inheritance. He knew what the, Jesus, the Jewish leaders didn't know. He knew that it was for men and women like him that Jesus had come to bring salvation. Then we read verse 16. And he reclined at the table in his house. Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and there were many who followed him. It's not by accident that this episode is placed in Mark's gospel so close to Jesus' healing of a leper. As scandalous as Jesus' teaching or touching the leper was, it was even more scandalous that he would invite into his company a social leper like a tax collector. To make matters worse, he then went to dinner at Levi's house with many other tax collectors and sinners. Levi now is filled with gratitude. He's left everything. 
He's thrilled about what the Lord has done in his life. And he throws a banquet, probably to celebrate his newly chosen occupation. He has a big house. In Luke's gospel, um, he, he says that it was his house, a large house. It was a lavish affair intended to honor Jesus as a forum to have his friends hear directly from Jesus. He wanted to evangelize them and tell Jesus the story of forgiveness and probably also so Levi could give his testimony. He invited everyone. But of course, the ones who came were the only people who would come because those were the only people who could associate with the tax collector. So what you had here was all the despised rejects of Galilee. It was a revival because it says they were tax collectors and sinners. It was the general category uh, which all of the sidelined professions of crime and prostitution went with them and they were all there and there were many of them and they were following him. These were the people who would never get to heaven, supposedly, but through Jesus they did. Now we read verses 16 and 17. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. His answer is a very simple analogy. Doctors go to sick people. Jesus is the spiritual doctor. He is the spiritual physician. And he needs to go to the people who need to be healed. The Pharisees can see how sick with sin these people are. They know they are sinners. They label them as sinners. They have a complete recognition of their sinfulness, but yet they don't see why the Savior comes and goes to these sinners. <clears throat> There's a, this is a very strong indictment of their cold hearts. That's why Jesus said, in contrast to going to them with the words recorded later by this same Levi, now Matthew, in Matthew's Gospel. <clears throat> Two contrasting verses here. The first one, about Jesus, the second, about the Pharisees. <clears throat> Matthew 11, 29, or 27 to 29, it says, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Later, Levi, now Matthew, in Matthew 23, records this. Jesus also saying, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, and so do observe whatever they tell you, 
but do not the works they do. <clears throat> For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make, they make their phylacteries broad on their, and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. The Pharisees were so far from God. They could identify people as sinners. But instead of wanting to be the source of these sinners' healing and bringing them spiritual well-being, instead they condemned them. And when Jesus had mercy on these sinners, they were just filled with anger at Jesus, the merciful physician, who, in compassion, welcomed the forgiven and believing sinners into his salvation kingdom. With Jesus, where sin abounds, grace also abounds much more. And so it is today. The body of Christ, his church, this church is not made up of people who think they're righteous. It's made up of people who know they're not. It's not made up of people who have, by their birthright or their own efforts, attained to a certain status with God. It's made up of people who know they could never attain to an acceptable place before God on their own. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin, but the only sin he can forgive is the sin of those who know their wretchedness and acknowledge it and put their trust in him. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so blessed this morning to hear again the exciting message of the gospel. We thank you that you have convicted us of our sin and given us a realization that we cannot save ourselves and that you've revealed your glorious gospel of grace to us. I pray for the other sinners who are willing to recognize their sinfulness. Lord, prepare their hearts. Make them be like Levi, waiting for your call. We ask that you call them today. May you call them away from their sin and the glory of salvation. Call them away from guilt to the fullness of forgiveness. For we know that you love to do this, not because they've earned it, but because they humbly ask it. Lord, we thank you for this gift. We thank you for our salvation. In Christ's name.